In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Raise your hand if you ever saw the Christopher Nolan film called Interstellar. Anybody see that? When he got done with Batman, he made a space film and saw Interstellar, right? So those of you that are raising your hands having seen Interstellar, raise your hand if you got it. Yeah, um, neither did I. Uh, it was wonderful, and yet, uh, here's the plot. The earth is falling apart, it's crumbling, it's becoming increasingly uninhabitable. And so what do the scientists do? They say, let's go to space and find a more habitable place in which humanity might you know, relocate. They won't find it on Mars, they've got to find it further out. And this physicist finds a way for astronauts and scientists to travel to a faraway place and bend time and space and find different places. And, and there's already been success in that way, but, but three astronauts board this plane and they head out to the stars and they cross vast distances. And then they're faced with a choice because they know of two possibilities that they might go to. And one astronaut votes for one particular place. And when a debate ensues about why that one, she has to concede something. That the one habitable spot that she might have them all go to is inhabited by someone that she loves. And there ensues a little bit of an exchange, a, uh, an intramural squabble among the astronauts on the plane, talking to each other about something that has nothing to do with physics. Listen. But maybe we've spent too long trying to figure all this out with theory. You're a scientist, Bran. So listen to me. When I say that love isn't something we invented, it's observable, powerful. It has to mean something. Love has meaning. Yes, social utility, social bonding, child rearing. We love people who have died. Where's the social utility in that? None. Maybe it means something more, something we can't yet understand. Maybe it's some evidence, some artifact of a higher dimension that we can't consciously perceive. I'm drawn across the universe to someone I haven't seen in a decade who I know is probably dead. Love is the one thing we're capable of perceiving that transcends dimensions of time and space. Maybe we should trust that, even if we can't understand it yet. That's not just a debate in a movie. That's a debate for the eternities. That's a debate of the souls. Is love anything more than what bonds us together that provides for us an adaptive advantage so that we and our genes survive. Is that all love is? And that anything else that we might speak of it is just sort of a romantic flourish, a synaptic misfire? Or is there something more to it? Does that speak of something greater than just our need to connect? Friends, that's a debate we all have a theory on and we all operate from some basis of that theory, whether we're aware of it or not. And that's why on a day like today, we're remembering something that spoke of love 
as something greater than just an adaptive advantage. Because long before Christopher Nolan makes a a movie about space and about physics and about love and about survival, there was a poem by W.H. Auden right on the cusp of World War II in which one of the lines from that poem says, we must love one another or die. And it's that line that has inspired the entirety of our reason for looking at this text during Lent. But long before both Christopher Nolan and W.H. Auden had something to say about perhaps love being something more than adaptive advantage, no less than the Apostle Paul said, love is bigger. It's grander than you know. And in fact, it is beyond limits. To conclude what has been a very patient walk through a very familiar, if not too familiar, passage about love in 1 Corinthians 13, he is here to tell us that love is something beyond limits. And if we would do it right and pay homage to what it is, we must consider what limits it is beyond. So we're going to finish this chapter, and we're going to consider three ways in which there are no limits to it. No limits to its necessity, no limits to its priority, and no limits to its greatness. So if I might ask you once more to stand Let's read this passage together from the end of 1 Corinthians 13 and also from Philippians. And now may your love abound more and more in knowledge and discernment. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. If you haven't been with us, we've been, again, walking almost two or three words at a time through Paul's most famous declaration about what love is. And if you've not been with us, then then you've missed how we've said, or from what he has said, that when he says that love does not envy and does not boast, It means his love is beyond something that you and I feel very instinctually, and that is to compare ourselves to one another and to either feel inferior or superior. That when he says love is not arrogant or rude, we've said that love is beyond caricature, again, of either ourselves or of another with whom we have an issue. A few weeks ago, Andrew helped us see that when Paul says 
Love does not insist on its own way. It's something far more profound than just altruism. It reaches into something foundational about who we are, but more importantly, who God is. And last week we said this. You and I have a natural instinct to rejoice when a wrongdoer gets their just desserts. But Paul made this audacious claim that you know what love does? It's really more interested in their repentance such that you might rejoice with them in that repentance far more than delighting in the fact that they finally had it handed to them. And in that sense, love is beyond, for all you German speakers, it's beyond Schadenfreude. It's beyond taking any joy and harm. It's beyond what that character in The Simpsons who always goes, ha ha! Love is beyond all those things. But this morning we're hearing that it is beyond limit. And when we believe it is beyond limit, we're saying that love is everywhere needed. That there is no place in which love cannot exist or which it is not necessary. And therefore, the first thing that I think Paul is out to tell us is that there is no limit to its necessity if you just think about the nature of love. Its nature explains its necessity. So, what is its nature? When you were a baby, before you remembered anything, before you were even forming memories, you got hungry and you couldn't feed yourself and someone had to rouse from their sleep and either nurse you or fumble for a bottle and hold it there until you were done. You had that need and they had to bear you up in the middle of it. Or if you had the croup you were congested and you were coughing and nothing would remedy it. Somebody had to get up in the middle of the night, take you into the bathroom, turn on the hot shower, close the door, and stand there while they sweat so that you could breathe. Because you couldn't do that for yourself. And what that points to is the fact that love bears all things. It bears all needs. If you were ever trained in a sport or in a music or in some form of aptitude, some of you are prodigies and, and you teach yourself. But for the rest of us, we need help. We need somebody to, to put our feet to the fire and, and to guide us in that way and to encourage us on along the way and also to maybe get in our face when we were slacking off. And we needed somebody to, to pull us out of our rut because we can't do that for ourselves. We needed somebody to remind us that they believed that they would not give up on us. And if you've ever been the beneficiary of somebody like that in your life, then, then you know firsthand, in part, why love believes all things and hopes all things. And if you've been a friend to someone who was spiraling in anger, in depression, in addiction, you know what it's like to have to encourage them and to confront them and to try to protect them. And in the middle of your efforts to do all that for them, you know that there is no stopwatch that says, you'll be done soon. <laughs> there is no progress bar on the screen that says, just a few more minutes and your work is done. And that is because love endures all things. It understands 
that the duration in which you will be required to do that for them, it's not been disclosed to you. Love endures all things. It is resilient. It perseveres. All of these ways, we speak of how love is necessary. You can't go without it. You can't live without having been given an opportunity to extend it. And in all those sort of hypothetical foundational ways, let's, let's just broaden out here just a little bit to the last 12 months. Do you know what stories have most captivated you over the last 12 months? Doctors and nurses sticking their neck out. Teachers trying to find a way to protect and teach their kids. Friends and siblings and parents and daughters and wives standing at bedside of people who are sick or who are dying. Do you know why they do that? It's out of love. And you've marveled at those stories because of love's necessity. And, and you know, on the flip side, you know, you know the stories that have most incensed you? Where there was indifference or greed or deceit or corruption or hatred or violence? Unless you were filled with your own arrogant self-righteousness, what most incensed you about those stories was the absence of love. Where love was needed, love went AWOL. We see its necessity. And what is true of what we've observed, if we might be very frank, it has also been true of what we've experienced in these last 12 months. Because look, This has been a season of struggle and duress, to put it lightly. And you've been faced with all sorts of temptations. And one of those temptations, in the midst of somebody that you disagree with, is to rebuff them, to react to them, to retaliate against them, instead of bearing up under it, instead of enduring all things. And other moments where you've been just sort of tempted to in a reflexive kind of suspicion or to sequester yourself in little silos rather than not give up on somebody even with whom you have a great disagreement or even somebody that acts towards you in a way that is absolutely beyond the pale. In those moments, we've been tempted to forget that love, love doesn't give up, but love believes all things, hopes all things. Love endures and it endures until somebody gives us a reason not to trust them but even when we don't trust them rather than simply punish them or cancel them we try to engage we try to seek understanding there is no limit to the necessity of love one of the most profound moments in all of that film of mr rogers neighborhood that tom hanks plays i might play it for you but it's just it takes too long and it's set up and it's, it's beautiful, but there is a moment when the journalist who has come to cover him for the sprawling article in Variety magazine that year, that man himself is broken inside. And, and in the middle of a Chinese restaurant, Mr. Rogers says, can I do a little experiment with you? Can I ask you to take a total moment of silence and just think of all the people who have loved you into being? And if you were in that theater, and you experienced that moment, you might have been brought to tears. Because if any of us would even begin to catalog the number of people to whom we have a debt of gratitude, that by their love, 
We are who we are. And even in the ways in which we find ourselves deficient, we know that there is a template for love. Love has no limits to its necessity. Where do you see love needed in your moment? Your world? It is always timely. But Paul has a second thing to tell us. Not only that it's timely, not only that it has a no limit to its necessity, but that there's a timelessness to it. And in that sense, there is no limit to its priority. And the reason there's no limit to its priority is what he says in verse 8. Love never ends. A diamond, the reason we ascribe so much value to it is because it is the product of something that has withstood enormous heat, enormous pressure, and it reflects a brilliance and a resilience that we naturally say, that's what I want. And we give it value. We give it priority. And if you thought Interstellar, the movie, was woo-woo, the part of this passage that gets woo-woo is about what you're to hear again. And it's about to confirm for you that in as much as you've probably heard this passage quoted on any number of weddings, from what you're about to hear, you're going to realize Paul really wasn't thinking about talking to somebody in a veil and a tuxedo when he wrote this text. Because he says about the priority of love, he's talking about this. Look, chapter 13 is bookended between chapter 12 and chapter 14. Isn't that brilliant? And what chapter 12 and chapter 14 are all about is about Paul talking about what will sustain the unity and the integrity of the church because that was challenged. Some things never change. And in that sense, in order to protect the unity and the integrity of the church, he says God has given the church gifts, spiritual gifts, gifts to understand him, gifts to make him known, gifts to work on his behalf, spiritual gifts. And that's where you hear about the tongues and the prophecy and the knowledge and some of you from a Pentecostal background are going, finally, we get to talk about this. And others of you who are not from the background are going, oh, please don't talk about this. But in that moment, what Paul is saying, that those gifts that they've been given, they have a purpose and they have a great usefulness. And yet what has happened in those who receive them and those who manifest them, something has shifted in their brains in being the possession of those gifts such that they are beginning to think of those gifts kind of like a middle-aged man in midlife crisis likes to show everybody his six-figure toy he just bought. Oh, look at this. Which is really another way of saying, look at me. And what I'm trying to compensate for from within me that I can't think is there. These folks thought of this gifts as almost as what's supposed to be at the center of their being, as the most important thing. And therefore, that which has some importance, they've made of the most importance. And Paul is saying, you don't get it. The gifts, they have purpose, but they're not the main thing. They help, but they are not everything. They're not to be at the center of your being. Okay, goodness gracious, what is the point, Pastor? Why am I bringing that up? Here's what I'll tell you. Those things, those gifts, they're, they're not so unlike the things that you take right satisfaction in and delight. There are any number of things that you have enjoyed in your life and you go, I'm, I'm so pleased and grateful that that is part of my story. You have gratitude for them. 
you have satisfaction in them, whether it was a degree that you got or a job that you got or accolades that you received or any number of things that you felt like was a, an accomplishment. There's right pleasure in that. There's satisfaction in that. But if you are honest with yourself, if you will just sit someday and think of all the things that you might want to put on a resume someday, you know very well that those things, for all the way in which they give you meaning and purpose, they are nothing unless something else is at the center of your being. I don't care how many people you've impressed or how many people you've led or how many deals that you've struck. If love isn't at the center of your being, those things don't matter. We know in part and we prophesy in part, he says. And therefore, what he means by that is that even with the gifts that we have to know God and to represent God, that's far less than what we could have access to in him. And therefore, of greatest priority, it's not our gifts and not our accomplishments, but whether love is resonant within us. Because everything else you give your heart to, it has a shelf life. It has an expiration date. It won't last. It can't last. See, when, when Paul invokes the, the whole imagery of, of moving from childhood to adulthood, he's, he's saying that that is a progress. We all, we all rock towards maturity. And he is arguing that the true mark of maturity is not you know, the size of the project that you've been able to conceptualize or execute. The true mark of maturity is whether or not you believe love has the greatest priority. You know why that matters? You know why, why love has to have a priority? Because you know what love does? Love steps into the sidewalk to protect an elderly woman from being tortured. You know what love does? Love offers its ear to those who are in distress. It offers its presence to those who are in despair. Love, love will acknowledge their own errors in order to begin to make maybe making mending fences between somebody that we've hurt. And love even begins and tries to look past those errors to believe that reconciliation might be even possible. Love will act justly for those who have been acted unjustly toward. But you know what love will also do? He will even try to act for the good that have, that for those who are acting unjustly themselves. Love does all those things. Love will. It's of maturity. It's of eternity. And that's why he says in verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. The reason there's priority is that he's talking about what is true now and what will be true later. That there is an understanding of God that we have now and an understanding of God that we will have later. Faith will become sight. The knowledge of him that is partial will be a knowledge of him that is full. But here is one thing that is true of you. There is no day you have ever lived in which you have not been fully known. Let me ask you this question. Who knows you most? Somebody's probably coming to your mind just now. Who knows you most? But then let me ask you a follow-up question. Who knows you fully? 
No one does. No one knows every thought that you've had, every feeling that you felt, every motivation for your action. They don't know it. They don't know it fully. And so here's the rub. What if the person who knew you most knew you fully? Would they still want to be in relationship with you? Would they still want to bear up and believe all things and hope all things and endure all things for you? Because you and I know that if someone who knew you most knew you fully and still wanted to be in relationship with you, you know what that is? That's love. And here's the thing about the Lord. You have been fully known by Him forever, even before there was a you. And rather than that diminish in Him the desire to be in relationship with you, He has made a way for you to be in communion with Him without forsaking His holiness and without withholding His mercy. He has done that for you. He has done that for me. Love has no limits. Love has no limits to its priority. Because He has known you fully and chosen to love you anyway. Now, if that's what love is, who wants to sign up for that high bar? Or who wants to think they could ever get there? And if they can't, why even bother? Let's just survive. Isn't that enough? If I, man, I just don't have to harm anybody. We'll just do that. I won't harm anybody. But love? You know what? Thanks. No. That's why we have to consider the last thing that I think Paul has for us. Not only is there no limit to its necessity or its priority, the question is, is there no limit to its greatness? Verse 13, enter the flourish. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Those are the theological virtues, faith, hope, and love. Why is love greatest? You know, with a little help from other theologians and pastors, here's why love is greatest. Faith, faith is where you place your trust in someone. You, you kind of take refuge in them and you, 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 you find your rest in them. God, God doesn't need that. And therefore, faith is something that we do. Hope, hope is, is looking forward to a good outcome, but not being able to see the means by which or even the trajectory along which it might ever manifold, manifest. But God, he sees all things, so he, he doesn't need to hope. Love, love is a different place. Love has been in God forever because God is love, because God is a community in unity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, living forever in love with one another for the sake of everything that they touch, for the sake of everything that they are to each other. Now, you talk about woo-woo. The Trinity is woo-woo. But the reason the greatest of these is love is because love has always been, and love is the very center of all things. You know what? That's great. Let me bring it down to a very practical level. Do you know why love is the greatest? Because love is at the bottom of the one thing that you and I invariably will need. Ted Lasso is a football coach from Wichita. And yet he gets hired to be a soccer coach in the United Kingdom, having never coached a soccer game in his life. And he shows up affable, unflappable, ready to hit the ground, ready to learn, and he's brilliant at it. 
But we learned by the end of the first season of that show that him being hired to do that was all a setup. It was a setup for him to fail, for him to fall. It was a setup by no less than the owner of the team herself. And what motivated her to do that was to take revenge on her ex-husband who used to own the team. But there comes a moment late in that season in which this owner, she has a reckoning and she wants to talk to Ted. And this happens. I have something I need to tell you. Oh, deja vu. <laughs> Ted, I lied to you. I hired you because I wanted this team to lose. I wanted you to fail. And I sabotaged you every chance I've had. It was me who hired that photographer to take the photo of you and Keeley. I set up the interview with Trent Krim, hoping that he would humiliate you. And I instigated the transfer of Jamie Tart, even though you'd asked me not to. This club is all that Rupert has ever cared about, and I wanted to destroy it, to cause him as much pain and suffering as he has caused me. And I didn't care who I used or who I hurt. All you good people just trying to make a difference. Ted, I'm so sorry. If you want to quit or call the press, I'll completely understand. I forgive you. You what? Why? Divorce is hard. It doesn't matter if you're the one leaving or you're the one who got left. It makes folks do crazy things. Well, I'm coaching soccer for heaven's sake. <laughs> In London. <laughs> I mean, that's nuts. <laughs> Yeah. This job you gave me has changed my life. It gave me the distance I needed to see what was really going on. Yeah, but you and me, we're okay. Come on, just shake this hand. My arm's starting to get... You know, I think that if you care about someone and you got a little love in your heart, there ain't nothing we can't get through together. You know what I'm saying? Where does that love come from? It's a sitcom, I know. But there is beauty in the act of forgiveness because you and I both know that forgiveness down at its bottom is an act of love it is knowing that we are all weak. It is knowing that we are all frail and failures. And there is nobody on this planet who will not have to both extend it or receive it. And the question is, how do we learn it? I will tell you. Because at the cross, there was one who said, this love forgives 
there is a love that forgives. And it's that same love that both succumbed to death and triumphed over death in order to prove that that love was real. This Jesus bore all things. He believed all things. He hoped all things. He endured all things to tell us all that love is bigger than this. Love transcends not only time and space, but sin and death. And that's why we rightly give Him praise. It's why we quiet ourselves before Him and why we shout our praises to Him. Beloved, there was a theologian of the last century named Hans von Erzbalthasar, and I can't even pronounce his name right. But he says this, Love alone is credible. Nothing else can be believed, and nothing else ought to be believed. If you don't believe this love, I'm inviting you to believe this love. I'm inviting you, as one person said, to make a courageous assumption that it might just be true. And if you feel resistant to that, I invite you to inspect your own assumptions about why you can't and why you think they're better assumptions. But if you have believed this, I'd invite you to believe it anew. Are you angry? Anger is not the problem so far as what anger does to you. You know what this love will do? It will rescue you from letting that anger turn you into the very thing that you hate. Are you depressed? Are you addicted? This love will confront you in your hopelessness. And do you believe you are sinful beyond measure? Brothers, sisters, welcome guests. This love will confront your worthlessness to say, even you, he will die. This is our hope. This is our praise. Let's pray. And so, Father, on this day, where we actually again countenance the thought that in fact he walked again, he spoke again, he ate again, he taught again. Oh, Father, help us now to believe that and help us now to believe in the love that bore it and that the love that we all need and that this world needs even more. In Jesus' name, amen. Beloved, I leave you with this benediction on this Easter morning and then get outside and go find some eggs. Here we go, 1015. Ready? Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Happy Easter.